to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Ansman, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Seligson, and our guest co-host, Kali Foxman. Hi, Dan. Hi, Kali. Hey, guys. Hi. I'm so excited because I get to binge watch TV every time we do an episode, it seems. And thanks for having me back to discuss Netflix again. Yeah, this is pretty much what we talk about now. We've been truly blessed with an embarrassment of riches when it comes to Netflix and Israeli content. On previous episodes, we've talked about Fauda, When Heroes Fly, and Stissel. Today, we're going to talk about the new six-part series, The Spy, starring Sasha Baron Cohen as real-life Israeli spy Ellie Cohen. The series was created by Gideon Raff, whose Israeli drama Prisoners of War was remade here in America as Homeland. Eli Cohen was an Egyptian-born Jewish-Israeli recruited by the Mossad to be an undercover agent in Syria, which he did successfully for four years in the 1960s. Because the spy is inspired by true events, we know how the story ends, and it's worth it to read up on the real Eli Cohen. The story of this man is incredible— from helping to rescue Egyptian Jews from persecution to his espionage in Syria, which provided valuable intelligence that was said to have greatly assisted the Israeli military in the 1967 Six-Day War. So let's get into talking about this show. And first, let's talk about Sasha Baron Cohen in this role. I think we were all super impressed. I know when I first heard about his casting, I was like, oh my God, is this going to be Borat? Is it going to be Bruno? Is this going to be okay? But he's really great. He almost portrays two people here, which is kind of the central dichotomy of the story. He plays Ellie Cohen, who we first meet as a filing clerk at a department store, and who feels the sting of being treated differently in Israel because of the color of his skin. And he plays Kamel Abin Thabet, a fantastically rich and charismatic Syrian who rubs elbows with all the right people in the Syrian military and political hierarchy and just goes around flexing on people in amazing cars and suits. So what did you guys think? I I thought he's perfect for this role because, you know, one of the hallmarks of Sasha Baron Cohen is his ability to go undercover as an artist, as an actor, making the people who he's meeting with really believe that he is this character so that they humiliate themselves in epic ways that, you know, stick with them for the rest of their lives. So if he can do this to real people in Tucson, Arizona, at Arizona State, um, you know, in, in at a rodeo and, you know, wherever he does these things, he humiliated Dick Cheney. Right. He, he's a pro. So to have him play a spy is almost like not a stretch for him. And it's so funny because in his show, Who is America?, that was it, right? He he actually had a character that was like uh, almost fo- like a takeoff of the uh, macho Israeli like agent character. And it's so funny to see that comedic take on it versus this very serious take on it that he's done. He nailed it, though. He nailed the Israeli. I'll he really tell you. did. Yeah, I haven't actually seen him in much of his other work. So I sort of was going in as... Um, a newbie in a, in a sense to his acting chops. And I thought he was amazing and I loved him in this. And if you didn't know who he was, I think you would just think, Oh, he's kind of an unknown, like yeah. dramatic actor. Cause he was so good in this role. And one of the things I was reading um, when I was reading up on 
Ellie Cohen in real life. His daughter was quoted recently as saying that although she wasn't happy that the show took some artistic liberties, um, as is typical, she was pleasantly surprised by Sasha Baron Cohen's portrayal and that he actually reminded her of her father sometimes. I mean, he looks... In the show, he has a striking visual similarity to Mm -hmm. the person he's playing. And that doesn't always happen when they do adaptations. But he really did look the part. And Mm -hmm. I did love um, the training. There's a training montage in like the first episode. And you can tell that Sasha Baron Cohen got super ripped for this role. Like you see him doing like pushing over tires and running around the track. And Mm -hmm. he, he clearly did the physical work. Um, to prepare for this role as well. Yeah. One thing that was hard for me to get around initially was the mustache, and because I had Borat flashbacks. Um, but he acted his way around that thing, and that yes. was amazing. Yes. I mean, that's one of the ways in which he's strikingly similar to yes. the real-life Cohen is because of this very iconic mustache. I think that mustache was extremely popular in the Arab world at the time, and it mm. did remain I. You know, when I've seen pictures of Ba'ath Party leaders, like especially the Iraqis, mm. remember they they had like these playing cards of Iraqi high-ranking officials. They all had Saddam Hussein's mustache. And this was pre-Saddam mm. Hussein, yeah. so. Do not grow that mustache yeah. at your own peril in Ba'ath Party, Iraq. He almost shaved it. There was one scene, and then someone knocked at the door. So like, Darn. it was over. The moment was over. One interesting stylistic thing the filmmakers did Um, for the series is there's a very different color palette um, in the scenes that are taking place in Israel and the series that are taking place in Argentina and then in Syria. The um, scenes in Israel are kind of washed out almost like muted muted. and in a few scenes there's actually a split screen where you see what's happening in both locations and that really stood out in in those cases and I think it was meant to my take was that it was meant to show how um, for Ellie in his role as Kamel, he he like he was living life in mm-hmm. this in this fake life, but he this was like amazing, and it really allowed him to blossom and just be more than he felt he was in Israel. And I thought that was reflected by the tones used. I also really liked uh, they did this very interesting thing in order to translate to the viewer uh, what was you know what things were what letters said, what signs on the wall said, what posters said. They had the Arabic letters or Hebrew letters rearrange themselves into English mm-hmm. so we could all kind of follow along without having it being written in English. That was yeah. an amazing device that John Carpenter used in one of my favorite <laughs> sci-fi movies called They Live from the uh, mid-80s starring Rowdy Roddy Piper. And what was happening was there were signs all over the city and there were these happy people and whatever. But as it turns out, aliens had planted subliminal messages in every one of the signs. So all over there were signs, exactly like we saw in the show that said, the enemy is listening or right. you know something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's a device that I've seen used before. And it was nice to see it again. Mm-hmm. Derivative, but nice because it hasn't been used for 30 some odd years. Well, I think it was helpful too um, in the sense of um, being able to show us the Morse code that he was yeah. using to communicate with Israel because that would be a lot of just sitting there watching him type fast, but um, the letters would just appear um, out, which was really cool. And then when he was writing letters to his wife, we could see that happening in real time. It was a helpful device instead of having somebody on the Israeli side running into a room being like, 
this is what he said, and yeah. then repeating it. Yeah, exactly. Well, we did. got some of that, though. We, I mean, we did get some of that, but this saved that for like special occasions. They, they yeah, did. They yeah. did. You know, I I thought that the color saturation was a little bit um, underestimating the viewer's capacity to understand the story. Mm. That uh, it wasn't particularly subtle. That the deeper that Ellie got into his Syrian character, mm-hmm. the more that Israel faded. Right. By the by the fifth or sixth episode, Israel was nearly in black and white. Yeah. Because it was so far away from his mind that it, he was not dreaming in color anymore. He was like he was not seeing Israel in his life anymore. So real life Syria, bright colors, drab Israel fading from his mind. Although what's interesting is at one one scene he looks out from Syria into Israel and that's the only time you kind of see that in full color. Mm-hmm. As as he sees things on the Syrian side, despite the fact that we as viewers know essentially the ending from the very first episode, there's no real surprise in what happens. It's history; it's out there, and they do kind of spell it out in the first episode, like it, in the first few in minutes. In the actually. first, yeah, like ten minutes, yeah. they still manage to have a very suspenseful series of episodes, like mm-hmm. remarkably so. You know, did you guys feel it was suspenseful despite knowing? how this played out. Yes. Yeah, I mean, to me, what what I thought they were trying to do by kind of spilling the beans about what happens to Ellie was that they kind of removed us from this inevitable march toward the thing that's going to happen and have us focus instead on what happens to the character, what happens to a spy who has to go so deep undercover that he has to lose his family, his personality, and become someone else. And, you know, I think we know, because we know within five, 10 minutes, how this story ends, we're allowed to focus on sort of this, this submersion into this the journey. Yeah. His mm-hmm. journey. Yeah. Like I knew sort of v- more vaguely what the real story was. Like I knew that he was caught in the end and that's not a spoiler. That's if you just like history know, folks know about this person, but I was like on the edge of my seat. I remember I was texting Miriam like, yes. Oh my God, he's doing this. He's doing this because like, Seeing him go from point A to point B, like through the duration of his spy journey, like I didn't know all of these details. And obviously some of it may have been exaggerated or there were artistic liberties taken. But I found it really suspenseful to just watch him as a spy and sort of how he was climbing the ranks of Syrian society. I was concerned after I saw the Red Sea Diving Resort last month, also on Netflix, also by Gideon, because uh, I thought he kind of he didn't do justice to that story, which was the story of Operation Brothers in uh, rescuing the Ethiopian Jews. I felt like he handled that with less suspense, like even though we knew how that ended too, it wasn't able to like maintain a sense of like, oh my God, what's going to happen? But this really did maintain that. And Mm -hmm. it was so tightly edited, I felt, and moved along at such a rapid clip throughout these six episodes that it had time to explore the characters, but also, you know, really invest us in what was happening, even though we knew what was going to happen. And like, we kind of almost hoped that by the end of it, that wasn't how it was going to go. But I also felt like it was at a cost, the Mm -hmm. way that they focused so heavily on the interplay between the characters and Ali and his wife and Ali and his uh, Syrian contacts that we didn't get to see the amazing things that he actually accomplished as a spy mm. that really changed 
Israel's fate, right. change the face of the Middle East, the, the stuff he did. I mean, it was no less important than changing the face of the Middle East and the outcome of that war. Yeah. And I think they, they sacrificed history for an intimate portrait. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they did, they did have some things that put it in a historical context. Um, for example, in Argentina, where he goes first to kind of set up his identity, and then he, he's supposed to be a Syrian living in Argentina, and then he moves to Syria, they do uh, mention the operation that was recently carried out by those Zionist operatives um, against Adolf Eichmann, who mm-hmm. uh, we, you know, we they we, name checked them, right? The they they name checked uh, a film that finale. came out last year, Operation Finale, about that, and so they're talking about how, oh, we got to keep an eye out for spies because Argentina is just riddled with those Israeli mm-hmm. spies. So they set that in the historical context of that particular operation. And I also thought the show did do an interesting job of pointing out the um, sort of ethnic issues that informed Ali's life and his wife's life because he was Egyptian. His wife was an Iraqi Jew. And they refer to that in the very first episode. They are they go to this party um, thrown by you know a wealthy Ashkenazi woman who is Giti from Shtisel. Yay, um, Giti's back in a blonde shaitel, um or a blonde wig. And uh, you know we see their feelings about how they're viewed in that society. And I felt that was a helpful context to bring to maybe why he felt so embraced in Syria, which is sort of like a very uncomfortable concept mm-hmm. for us to think about, like. Why would he feel more comfortable in that situation than he did in Israel? And uh, going back to what Dan was saying, too, about some of Cohen's real-life accomplishments, one of the things that I didn't know but that I read after was that he was actually identifying Nazi war criminals that were given refuge in Syria and in other Arab countries. Yeah, that wasn't in the show, and I would have loved to have right. that little bit be in there. That would have right. been yeah, amazing. Like one or two Nazi punching <laughs> yeah. instances would have been great. Yeah. And there's uh, also another television film about his life from 1987, so maybe we'll have to watch that next called The Impossible Spy. But but these are essentially the only two sort of fictionalized versions right. of his story. Yeah. I did like how they touched upon some of the, like explaining some of the security issues that still are in effect today. Like, why does Israel currently hold the Golan Heights? Well, we saw why it was such a problem mm-hmm. that the Syrians could just sight down on the kibbutzim there and shoot civilians directly right. from there. And and then why the Kinneret or Lake Tiberias mm-hmm. is so strategically important in terms of water resources. So right. they did kind of give some context and I think that perhaps because it takes place before uh, the '67 war, they didn't. We didn't fully see the the kind of payoff to his work because that's really where it was valuable. Mm-hmm. And what, well, one of those scenes, I think it was episode five, which was the jewel in the crown. Oh, of this, a great of this episode! Show. It was fantastic. Watch the first ten minutes, reround. Oh, watch it again. I'm getting chills <laughs> thinking about the scene where he's standing at an observation post and yeah. the general, I think. Colonel yeah. maybe has told him to look through this sniper rifle through the scope and shoot someone. He just said, "Shoot one of the Zionists." Right, and the just the tension of that scene was just so overwhelming. I think yeah. I had to pause and I was just like, oh "Take my a God. minute." Yeah. <laughs> I, needed, I needed a safety I break. Was like, is he going to shoot? Oh my! How is he going to do that? We're yeah, telling you so, nothing about well, what happens in that scene. However, really. <laughs> it was extraordinary TV. That was super um, tense. Yeah, it blows my mind that this is. A true story. Yeah. Like when I actually think about, oh my God, like this is, this actually happened. It's, 
wild. I think that's what's so great about, you know, all these adaptations we've seen in the last year or so of these Israeli undercover operations, um, Operation Finale, mm-hmm. Red Sea Diving Resort, you know, all the, the Antebi, you know, <laughs> these are, it's so crazy because these are all true stories. Yes, there's some artistic license being taken here and there, but at the end of the day, these things really mm-hmm. happened. Yeah. And it's hard to overstate how incredibly implausible it seems. Yeah. And Just yet, like the state, the founding of the right. state. And I yet, mean, yeah, here we are. There's a movie that came out recently that maybe we should talk about at some point, but it's about these uh, Air Force uh, veterans who fought in World War II who took these really trashed planes to Israel and formed the original Israeli Air Force with these planes that were really not even, shouldn't have been in service anymore. And by basically stealing these planes and bringing them to Israel, they were able to save the state in 1948. Like there are so many things that if one thing had gone wrong, Israel was fucked. Yeah. And like this, this show really shows you that. Like mm -hmm, what if he, what if he wasn't there? Well, that's exactly why they place Mm -hmm. him in Syria because they have nobody. They're not getting any intel. Right. Um, they, have for, they have nothing. Yeah. And that's why they need him. And that's why any little tidbit of information, like he even, you know, so in one one sequence as his cover, he has an import export business and he decides to wrap everything in newspaper, which seems innocent to anybody else. Oh, he's just packaging stuff up. But really, he's sending the newspapers to Israel by way of using them as packing materials. It was pure genius. Yeah. I was like, did he come up with that himself or was this all part of Israel's plan? Because that was incredible. Yeah. You didn't see how much training he got other than yeah. the physical. Like I, it seemed like he was ad living a lot. Right. Training montage. Well but... he really really in real life was a six month window right, of training. It was, short. it was not a lot. So that scene right at the beginning. Yeah. Where he they decide that he's the right guy because yeah. they the Mossad gives you the wrong address for their office building. So someone is supposed to be able to figure out by looking at the street scene in Tel Aviv, where exactly the Mossad office is. And, you know, the, the guy who trains Ellie eventually says, you know, if, if he finds it, we'll know that he's the guy. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it shows that you have this instinct for spy craft or whatever that you just know where you would keep an office like that. You need yeah. to be high up so you could look down and see who's on the street. You need to be. You I know, don't just, think I have that instinct because I was like, I don't get how he figured it out. Like, you're a terrible spy. I'm, I'm a Good horrible to know. spy. But horrible. I was like, oh, obviously it's behind you. They're looking at you. Clearly it's a yeah, test. I was just and, like, oh, interesting. But <laughs> so, I mean, that was so, so fascinating. They only, yes, yeah, six month mm-hmm. window of training, physical training. Yeah. You show him you know, learning Morse code yeah, um, and yeah, totally. doing like a couple of things. But he's, it's really, I don't know if they talk about the psychological, they don't like train him, you know, what happens when this all goes wrong. When you're in deep Right, they, they only, they give him a pill, which he could take in the event that it's captured so he could commit suicide. They actually gave him a whole bottle, which oh, a whole interesting. Bottle. Just um, a whole bottle. So the bottle it. was... Other pills, but oh. inside the cap of the bottle was the one okay. single that cyanide pill. That makes way more sense. Thank you, not Dan. a good spy. Thank but you, Dan. That was his meeting with Q. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like let's talk about the technology a little yeah. bit because that was one of the fun parts. I was super impressed with what we could do in the 1960s. Yeah. And there's like this James Bond scene <laughs> where he gets that bottle of pills among some other ordinary looking right, household like his razor, objects. Like his electric razor in is a really suitcase. A, yeah. And it was so cool, even though it's, um, 
technology from the 1960s. Yeah. It was like soap bar bombs right, and right. other things. And you're just like, oh my God, this is so cool. I am disappointed. This is a spoiler that we never see him use the soap bomb because mm. it's just like no, soap. He didn't. Did it's he? a yeah. bomb. I forgot all and about I was, like, it. Really everything hoping. in the suitcase. I was like, like oh, are we going to see some yeah. soap explosions? They all had we dual purposes. But the spy camera, that was right out of the back of comic yeah, books yeah. when I was growing up. Yeah, the the transmitting of the messages is really fascinating. Like he figured out how to just plug in. Well, I guess it's all planned, but yeah. like part of what's in a suitcase is all the components to make this like radio transmitter, which is cool. So his uh, his tech goodies were were kind of fun to to see. And amazing to think how difficult this was without electronics. Without yes, although both oh my gosh. both more difficult and. Less difficult, less difficult because if you think about it now, like none of his running around on rooftops, like going any like that would be captured on CCTV. Oh, yeah. Somebody would have gotten him on a cell phone video like this would not have gone the same way in a time like right. now. No, it's so crazy. It's, like it's nobody knows technically where you are because there's no right. way to track your movement triangulate and anyone's cell phone yeah no cell phones um like when you went abroad no one right. could verify like that you actually <laughs> left and um just going in and out of different countries unspotted yeah. is yeah. wild and you can't like google somebody so at one scene yeah. early on you know he's trying to establish his credentials as a syrian and he tells, um, you know, he gives, he, he tells people like, oh, my parents are buried here. Yeah. Like this is their have grave plot. And so they actually details. send a guy to go mm -hmm. look and make sure that that's where the actual graves are. Right. Um, so every bit of information had to be verified, like mm -hmm. by somebody just walking on over and checking it out. The old school Google. <laughs> the old, old school Google. Um, yeah. Yes, like you walking. couldn't, yeah, you couldn't verify his identity. Which, um, yeah. Take him at his word. So although we spend most of our time with our spy hero, uh, we do see other characters, including his wife, Nadia, back at home, this poor woman who is raising these children all alone because she only sees her husband thrice yeah, during this entire three times time period. In four years. Yeah. So we've got um, other characters. We spend a lot of time with Peleg, who is the Mossad uh, recruiter who recruited him. Um, and he feels a lot of guilt because of something bad that happened to an operative who he had previously trained and kind of sent out into the field. And he feels guilt that he never connected with the family until he had to give them the bad news. So he actually meets Nadia and spends some time with her. So there's that character. So what other characters do we really like in this show? I liked. Um, so I only thought of him as Prince Doran from Game of Thrones or Dr. Bashir from Deep yeah. Space Nine. But I guess the character is really he's really named Syrian intelligence colonel Ahmed Sudani. But I'm just going to call him Dr. Bashir because mm -hmm. I can't not. But I, I mm -hmm. liked him. Yeah, I thought I know Dan disagrees with me, but I liked him. Well, I thought he was campy. I, I thought he was it. so campy. This yeah, whole act it. only with one's eyes was Ooh, just a little, yeah. a yeah, little but, too much for me. But I liked it. Yeah. I liked the actress Alona Tall. Oh who yeah, plays um, his Argentinian Argentine handler. handler. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, although she disappears midway through the show. Yeah, and we like, only whatever. see her kind of briefly, but when we do, she kicks some butt. She kicks a lot of butt. Mm -hmm. I remember her. I was like, "Who is this? I know her. She mm -hmm. was in Veronica Mars mm -hmm. years ago." Yeah, that's where I knew her from. Yep. I was impressed with Peleg as well, um, played by Noah Emmerich. Emmerich. I think is how you pronounce his last name. 
The fascinating thing about casting him was that he was in The Americans, which mm-hmm. was a five or six series show that was about two Russian spies who embedded themselves in Virginia as mm-hmm. a regular American family and all the complexities that came with that. Great show. Like mm-hmm. Really excellent yeah. show. Um, but in that show, Noah played the guy who was an FBI agent who lived right next door to the Americans, the mm-hmm. Russians who were embedded spies. And five or six episodes are spent with him not figuring out that right under his nose are Russian spies. In this case... I think like it's five or six years. Like it's a long time. Yeah. So in this case, he's the guy who's training people to do that in another country. Thought he was a fascinating choice, even though a couple instances in episode six where he kind of forgot to do his Israeli accent. I was very proud that he carried it (laughs) off for a long time. And I know that Gitty was the woman who plays... uh, Nadia's boss. Yeah, she was never really given much of a role in the no, show. Was... So we're going to call her Giti, even though that's her shtisel name. Yes, but IRL, <laughs> we had our producers research on Google it's the us. fact that she... Yeah, we have no producers. <laughs> <laughs> me, the producers, uh, coached Natalie Portman in pulling off a believable Israeli accent. And that's even though Natalie Portman, as we all know, is Israeli by birth. So it's hard mm. to get it's hard to get the nuances of the accent mm-hmm. perfectly correct. Yeah. yeah. No, and no one did that aim, you know that aim. the word pause. We didn't get any of that. We, I think we got it once. Well, mm. so they were supposed to be speaking Hebrew, but we were understanding it right. as English with a Hebrew accent, which is what shows do because we don't want to read subtitles. But yeah. So mostly Mostly believable. I actually like that they did this differently. In um, Red Sea Diving Resort, they just did whatever accent the actor brought with them that day. So Ben Kingsley, (laughs) Sir Ben Kingsley, brought his posh British accent, and Chris Evans was just Captain America. So I liked that they, you know, they tried, and I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Oh, they did, and they they pulled it off. I mean, yes, half the cast was Israeli, so that wasn't so hard, but for the half that wasn't, they did fine. I think they would have, I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen would have needed to become fluent in Hebrew. Well, he is fluent in Hebrew. He is? Yeah. Okay, so I'm curious, like, why they made the choice to speak in English versus... Because I feel, Hebrew. I mean, I feel or like Syrian it's, too. it's because, or, or Arabic. Yeah, I feel like it's our, uh, because of the audience. Like, like tr- it's this trying is for, to make it more accessible right, for it's us It's for an American audience, unlike something like Fauda, Fauda which is, right, which is exactly, like mm-hmm. this was from the beginning, yeah. kind of meant for an English-speaking audience. Mm-hmm. So when I'm looking at the cast list here, there are quite a few Israelis, quite a few They may be Israelis of Arab descent or Arabs who are not from Israel and some Brits and some Americans. So it really was a very international cast. And I did notice that um, Sasha Baron Cohen was able to change the way he spoke English when he was supposed to be speaking Syrian dialect Arabic versus Mm. Hebrew. And I think Mm. they actually do have a scene in the initial, like the first episode or something, I mean, he does speak Arabic uh, because he is an Egyptian Jew, but they have to change the dialect because he's going to Syria. So no right. one wants them to like slip Some up a- and say something accent. a little bit differently, mm-hmm. a little bit wrong, even though he you're like, oh, yeah, he speaks Arabic. But it's not as right. And they sound very, very distinctive, like a yeah. New Yorker versus talking to a Texan. It, it's a very right. different accent from Syria <laughs> to Egypt. 
Yeah. So let's go to talking about some of the symbolism used in this show throughout the show. There were a couple things that stood out to me that I noticed sort of on a repeating basis, some of it more obvious and maybe more meaningful than other things. For instance, bread and butter or toast and butter. We see a lot of scenes of different characters taking out a butter dish, uncovering the butter dish, putting it on some toast. We see this. But first, miraculously, that butter is very spreadable. Very for having spreadable. been in the fridge, it's I just some magical Israeli butter <laughs> yeah. that is spreadable despite being refrigerated. Right, right. Startup um, nation. Right, right. They've no no time to wait <laughs> yeah. for butter to soften in no. that country. <laughs> um, but the, like, it starts with Nadia and um, Ellie. We see them at home when they're the, the brief time we spend together with them at the beginning of the series as a, like, a married couple before he goes off and does this. They just happily have their toast together. And then you see them individually go through their lives mournfully kind of eating toast. Um, I think there's one scene that has a split screen down the middle Mm -hmm. and you see them eating toast. Mm -hmm. It's like a whole ritual. It's a meaningful ritual. Mm -hmm. And when Peleg, the recruiter, visits Nadia to try to help her get through raising her kids alone all these years, one time he makes breakfast and he sits down and attempts to put uh, butter on bread and and that's not a euphemism or anything, but like she's like, no, get out of my house. What are you doing here? You have art- ulterior motives because she thinks like maybe there's a romantic element, like he's trying mm. to ingratiate himself with her. But as soon as that bread happened, he was out. Bread and butter. Well, he was trying to ingratiate himself to her. Yeah. Clearly, but it wasn't I saw clear that. Why well, we don't well, want too many? Yeah, let's spoilers yeah. of. I, I think Nadia was uh, had selected her. Bread butterer mm-hmm, to yes. continue with the euphemism. It wasn't a euphemism, but it is now. But you know, enough of the bread. We understood that they were a very strong and connected marital unit, and that now they're not together. So we had to keep seeing them separately butter their own bread. I don't believe it was toast, by the way. No, I thought it was once just, it was, it was just some dry ass like room temperature just bread just with what bread. should be cold butter, and that's exactly and what was, they were eating in Stitzel. And I don't even. Just but like, it was like after dinner. It was like an after dinner it snack. It was like their all case. the time snack. Yeah, There's even one scene when Ellie's having just like a breakdown. Well, he's he's Kamel in this like mm. scene, but he like is so upset he takes everything out of the fridge and then he just sits on the floor and eats bread and butter in like a oh, God, miserable I'm famished. Can way. I just have some like, crappy bread like and crappy eating. butter? Um, butter is so good, though. It, well, yeah. But now okay. I feel like, okay, am I supposed to have a butter dish? Because at home, I don't. I just keep it in the original packaging. And that's telling me that I'm a trash person and, like, low class. So I've learned one thing mm-hmm. One thing. You need this, a ceramic dish. And you were raised in a barn, see. essentially. <laughs> I was raised by you wolves. You need to step it up. I do. Clearly. I do. Um, the, another metaphor that's maybe more intentional was that of a moth. Uh, mm-hmm. You see that in the very first sequence he looks up like when you it's actually a sequence when he's already in uh, captivity, like a lot of it's in flashback. But you see a moth uh, flying against the light and then it drops down dead. So it's sort of like a metaphor for his infatuation with the danger of espionage, his infatuation mm. with this life. Mm. Uh, and it's also, I thought, part of the imagery in the opening credits. You see the, yeah. the shape of the moth. I actually thought uh, it reminded me of a butterfly. Maybe it was no both. Maybe it's like him. Yeah, like Blossoming. in the opening credits, it's like it looked more like a butterfly. Like, right. I don't know. Like, but maybe he was yeah. like, yeah, he exited his chrysalis and he was now. Miriam and I are both rich, gesturing. Yeah, as we are butterfly. gesturing. We're, we're gesturing a lot. So I'm a hypocrite here because the very same thing that I just criticized Gideon Raff for doing, which is beating us over the head with bread and butter, 
I completely forgot about the moth butterfly thing. Yeah. Now it might be because it's Netflix and when you're binging, you do not you watch the intro. You the just intro. skip it. So well, I saw I it one it time. time. Yeah. I saw it one time and I completely forgot about it. So my fault, Gideon, please show us more butterflies <laughs> every scene, every episode, and then I'll realize what you're doing. Thank you. And then there was uh, another, well, this wasn't really symbolic, but maybe it was. when, Whenever he needs to change his character, when he needs to put on Ellie or put on Kamel, like he has to, he goes to the safe house in Switzerland and on one side of the closet, he hangs up the clothes of the person he's shucking, right? Mm -hmm. He's moving away from. And from the other side of the closet, he puts on those clothes. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, you know, and vice versa every time he has to switch. But the last time he changes from being Ellie, he doesn't carefully hang his clothes. His handlers find them later on the floor, just like thrown down, like he couldn't wait to be free of Ellie again and mm. resume his fancy clothes. And I think that speaks to the state of mind they're conveying in the show of him having. I don't know if that's true in real life, but like in the show, he's presented as like really wanting to go back. Like mm-hmm. he wants to get back in it and he can't wait to shed this part of himself. Mm-hmm. Well, he had this very Spartan existence in Israel yeah. in this drab. I mean, they made it extra drab with yeah. the color yeah. washout, but mm-hmm. this very drab apartment in a concrete, you know, this concrete heavy complex that he lived in and he ate bread. He ate yeah. butter. Mm-hmm. That's about yeah. it. And he, he timed uh, how long it took him to do invoices in a department store. Yeah. Right. I think that's a, a good place to talk about how glamorous his life was in Syria. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really interesting because I was wondering, I mean, obviously I've already noted that I'd be a horrible spy, but could you actually... But I guess a great spy would say You are one right now. We don't know. You'd be amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, he was living in, in a really nice apartment. He had nice clothes. Um, he was hosting these fabulous parties, going to dinners, and... It just made me wonder if he was acting, in a sense, about enjoying those accommodations, because I don't know what it's like to pretend to be a different person, but did did he become overtaken by this fake life? He had really infrequent visits home, which is another interesting thing. And in some of the reading I was doing, it seemed like American spy programs at that time were not as all encompassing, yeah, immersive, great yeah. word, as this particular situation was. When like, I think about what Ellie and Israel were trying to do, it was just like the audacity of this project was was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they copied this Soviet style of embedding, but with Ellie, they took this anonymous Israeli and managed to create someone, or Ellie did it himself, managed to create someone who's basically a celebrity from the moment he walked into Damascus. And it was like you know, almost making your top agent the president of a rival country by (laughs) helping him to win the election and then having him so discord from within to -hmm. lead to the inevitable decline of that rival. Mm -hmm. Of course, in real life, that would never happen. It would never happen in real life, Dan. But he really was offered the... um, Well, they think so. I mean, they can't know definitively... But yeah, he we moved pretty high up. He got pretty high up in the in yeah. the Syrian government. Yeah. What's amazing is not only does he have to walk in as a Syrian, mm-hmm. but he has to walk in as like a baller. Like oh, he yeah. walks Absolutely. in as somebody who's been comfortable with wealth. Yes. Even though he didn't have it in Israel. Right. He has to pretend that this has been his life his whole life. Mm-hmm. Like this has been, he's always had this privilege. He's mm-hmm. always had this lifestyle and none of it is alien to him. Yeah. Which was like amazing that he was able to convey this and have this kind of charisma that people bought it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they and wanted to be friends with him, and they needed to hang out, and they wanted him to like them, and like Mm -hmm. it was amazing how quickly he wins all these people over. Really fast, yeah. Yeah. And he was not naturally an extrovert because we see from his job he sat alone Mm -hmm. with numbers and a calculator and a clock. So this was not the guy that we mm -hmm. saw in the beginning. Maybe it's the guy he always kind of wanted to be, and he was able to explore Mm -hmm. this kind of. Well, well, they should have used the imagery of a butterfly to show well, that may, to maybe me. Maybe they should have, or maybe that's exactly what <laughs> it was. Or bread. <laughs> mm. Mm. So let's go into our final takeaways for this. I know that we could probably talk about this series for a really long time because it was so good. And mm-hmm. so, and the real story behind it is so deep. Um, so let's, uh, let's get some thoughts. Kali, what was your, your final takeaway from this? I really liked it. I, as I mentioned, I didn't know the details of this story. So for me, it was, I think, newer than it is for both of you. Um, so I found it really suspenseful and I watched all six episodes in one <laughs> Amazing day, binge. One oh, evening. That is wow, a quality that, that was a lot, but like the whole time I was like wide awake, edge of my seat, texting Miriam, like, oh my God, how is this happening? Like I was, cause I didn't actually know how he would be caught. I didn't know how the story ended. So I really liked it. And then they included some bits at the very end about sort of um, the, the real life version of events and sort yeah. of where we are now. So I learned that Syria still refuses to release his body. Major spoiler alert. His body's in Syria. (laughs) No, his body is in Syria. And I mean, it's been quite a few years. It's been chronicled in the news. This Um, happened in the 60s. Yeah. Not a spoiler, I feel. Um, Right. So his family's obviously been trying to have his body released. And um, in 2018, his widow managed to reacquire his wristwatch. Yeah. So that was returned. Yeah. I mean, for me there was a lot of a lot of things about this that kind of reinforced things I already kind of thought or believed. Like this takes place before the 1967 war and yet, you know, you still hear everybody calling or uh, calling Israel the occupying power. So, and that's within the the 48 armistice lines, like within the quote-unquote green line. So you see that before, you know, Israel um took over the West Bank and the Golan Heights and everything in the Six-Day War, it was still considered occupying. So even if they went back to 48, eh, still occupying. <laughs> you know, and at one point, you know, I think that's a, I think that's important to remember what people really mean often when they say the occupation. It doesn't just refer to 67. It refers to everything. Mm. Uh, at one point, a character says, the world doesn't care, and if we don't take care of ourselves, no one will. There is no time. It's not on our side. An Israeli character says that. And this mentality is still here and why people get confused about why Zionism is important or why people feel Zionism is important. This is why, because I don't believe the real, you know, the rest of the world really cares about what happens to the Jews. And I don't really think that um, if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't guarantee that other people will, no matter how comfortable I feel here right now in America, which is less and less comfortable. That can go away in an instant. I truly believe that. And I think Jews who think they are protected by the world at large, we were wrong then, we're wrong now, and we've been wrong for thousands of years. And I think this just reinforced all the problems that I do have with the modern state of Israel. It's still necessary. 
Um, that's much better than the nonsense I'm going to spout oh, off okay. right now. So maybe you should get it down, have get that it go laugh. No, no, go ahead. That was amazing. But Bring me your nonsense. I, I thought the show was um, a little bit uneven. Mm-hmm. I've talked to three people when I said I'm going to do a podcast about the spy. They said, oh, yeah, we started that and turned it off. Mm-hmm. A lot of people couldn't make it through What's the first wrong with episode. People? I think that the, Gideon like Rath has butter? a style. He has a style. The exposition is very blatant and kind of in your face, sometimes dumbing down what he believes the audience is capable of comprehending. I thought that, you know, it really picked up steam episode four, five, and six. Uh, five was just like a killer. Oh, mm-hmm. so yeah, good. Five was 55 minutes of... Um, Pure adrenaline. I haven't yeah. felt that since Fauda. <laughs> and I will feel that every episode of Fauda yeah. season three. But I think, you know, this is a great addition to the Netflix canon of Israeli yes. history, either fictionalized, slightly fictionalized, or the midrash. True. The Netflix midrash. Yes. I so, feel like it's worth watching just to see Sasha Baron Cohen yeah. in such a dramatic role. Like, can you imagine if he really had been in Bohemian Rhapsody? Like, remember how he was initially cast? That's as too he old. He's too like, old. But that's what? not what, he, he left it because they were not true to Freddie's story. Uh, like, I want to see more yeah. of him in, um, in, in like, serious movies. Yeah. Like, he was, was really amazing. Very but, Sorry, Dan, I think you were Well, I want to see him as Borat again because that movie was disgusting <laughs> was and amazing. I couldn't, and I couldn't look. I loved Borat. So I hope, Sasha, wherever life takes you, you don't abandon comedy, even though you're very good at drama. Yeah, I do want to mention one funny, weird thing that I think is probably one of your problems with Gideon and his style. I love the fifth episode. It's so great. But there's one like five second weird bit. And that's when we see an eight, seven year old Osama bin Laden who gets like shoehorned into the plot for literally 30 seconds. So we can be like, oh, my God, it's Osama bin Laden. I got chills. Right. Which I didn't. Um, And I feel like it was just like how in American Crime Story, the people versus O.J. Simpson, they show the Kardashian children for a hot second because they're like, look, this is still relevant. Look what's going to happen in the future. Mm hmm. It's like the Kardashians and Osama Bin Laden. What, what happened in the future? They're on Instagram. <laughs> Shut up, Dan. <laughs> yeah, like they didn't, fact, he didn't need that for yeah. th- this to be relevant. Right. Fun fact to all our listeners out there. Dan and I first became friends when I heard him talking about the Kardashians and he was wrong. And I kicked open <laughs> his office door. And this is when I was a temp here. And I told him the correct story about what was actually happening. Do you know what we bonded over, though? A rat beef. Oh, yes, it was a rat beef. <laughs> <laughs> Kali and Dan, thanks so much for watching this thrilling and a little hokey and heartbreaking series with me. Uh, I can't wait to see what you're going to force me to watch next. I really do appreciate the it's fact the Kardashians. that I was not going to watch this show, but you told me to. You instructed me, demanded that I watch it. I did. It was worth it. Yes, very worth it. And I hope we didn't spoil this too much. I hope everyone watches this. And I hope everybody actually does the reading on Ellie Cohen, the real Ellie mm-hmm. Cohen afterwards, because the story is insane and it's real. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, thank you all out there for tuning in for this episode. Remember to follow us at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to the Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or tune in. And you can also email us at podcast at jewishboston.com with your comments, feedback, and ideas for future topics and guests. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Jesse, and our composer, Ryan, and our new golden calf, Netflix. Netflix.